you'll need your Bible. And we've got tons to do this morning, so if you just go ahead and turn to our passage, which is 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, while you're doing that, I just want to read over you what we just sang the last few lines. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built as the earth is filled with your glory. He will do it. We sing with such confidence and praise because He will do that thing. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So when you're there, hold up your Bible. Wait up, guys. All right, read with me. Starting in the last verse of 14. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold... He set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the ox that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the Lord, the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from, be- from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul. And Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel." Now, that was a lot. I mean, on one level, this is a long passage. And so reading it and working through it is a lot of work. But on another level, this is a difficult passage. It's a heavy passage. Right out of the gate, we're confronted with the judgment of God against a people. The total destruction of a people. And we spent an hour last Sunday attempting to wrap our minds around that judgment. But if that weren't enough, we turn the page and find a major theological issue. Regret. The regret of God. God regrets. And then Samuel seems to say that he doesn't regret. And then the passage ends with an affirmation that God indeed does, on some level, regret. How does a completely wise and completely powerful God regret anything? So that's a lot, a lot of moving pieces and a lot of issues. But before we actually get into the passage and try and sort some of this stuff out, I want to simplify things a bit. Because I think that this passage really revolves around three actors. And more precisely, about, it revolves around the heart behind all that they do. Forget that it's long and forget that it's messy. Just try and remember that this story is about the heart of Saul and the heart of Samuel. In the heart of God. Now, I think when you situate this passage in that framework, it becomes a bit easier to handle. 
Every sentence of this passage is illuminating the heart of God or the heart of Saul or the heart of Samuel. Now, you may have noticed that we didn't read the entire passage just a moment ago. If you, hear, if you were here last week, you may remember that this passage begins with Saul's obituary. A summary of his reign precedes this story, which is telling. Because we typically encounter the summary of a king's reign at the end of his life, not in the middle. And what we discussed last week was this summary happening right here in the middle of Saul's reign is an indictment. It is the final voice in a chorus of passages that tells us in no uncertain terms that Saul's reign is over. He may wear the crown, he may sit on the throne, but his is a skeleton of a kingdom. God has rejected Saul because of his sin. And the people of Israel have rejected Saul because of his sin. And Saul himself bears a curse because of his sin. He is a cursed man, and his actions are the actions of a cursed man. And his words are the words of a cursed man. So in a way, that obituary has taught us how to read this story. Saul is not the hope of Israel. Though his army has grown, though he may be victorious in battle, Saul is not the hope of Israel. Saul's actions actually oppose God. And Saul's actions are a curse on the people. God has rejected Saul, and instead he's seeking a man after God's own heart. Saul is not that man. Saul is a man after his own heart. Now, what is the heart of Saul? What is he seeking? What is his treasure? I think this passage answers that question. So let's start there. Take a look back at the passage and start in verse 8. Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Okay, so immediately, as soon as this passage pivots to the battlefield, we encounter disobedience. God clearly commanded the total destruction of the Amalekites and all that they owned. But Saul refuses. Instead, he destroys the Amalekite people. So you can dismiss any notion that he's driven by some sort of misguided compassion. But he spares Agag, their king, and all of their nice stuff. Saul ignores the command of God and instead pockets the best of their possessions. All right, let's stop for a minute for some Bible trivia. Do you remember who Achan was? As Israel entered the promised land, led by Joshua, God moves miraculously to topple the walls of Jericho. And he gave instructions to his people not to take any of their stuff. Total destruction. The destruction of Jericho was the judgment of God for century upon century of violence, slaughter, and wickedness of every sort. Total destruction was the decree. And God clearly warns his people not to take any of their stuff. But this guy, Achan, saw a few items that he liked a lot. So he takes them. Instead of destroying the devoted things, he takes them. And many in Israel died because of his sin. Achan was trouble for the people of Israel. His sin was death to them. A curse. Saul, too, is trouble for the people of Israel. His sin was death to them. A curse. 
Now, when Saul said, or when Jonathan said a couple chapters ago that Saul was troubled for the people of Israel, we were given a glimpse of that correlation. We began to see how Saul was like Achan, disobedient and foolish. We began to see how Saul was like Achan, a curse upon the people because of his sin. Now we see it clearly in three dimensions in technicolor. Saul leads the people of Israel into idolatry and disobedience because he knew the decrees of God and he ignored them. So now the only question remaining is why? Keep reading. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. The thing about the Bible is that nothing is there by coincidence. Nothing in the Scriptures is accidental. So when you find Saul directly disobeying the clear instructions from God, and then just two sentences later, you find Saul constructing a monument to himself, you've just been given an answer. Saul's disobedience is a symptom of a disease. And we've just been given the diagnosis. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument to himself. He's building a monument to himself, literally and figuratively. Look, all that we do is monument building. You can't get away from it. From the moment we were handed the image of God, we began constructing a monument. And your every action and your every word and your every thought is in fact adding layer upon layer of bricks ever forming the great monument of your life's work. The question is not whether you're building a monument. The question is to whom? We give glory or we demand it. There is no third direction. See, Saul's disobedience is systemic. We've seen it on display at every turn. He has been running in the opposite direction of the kingdom of God. He has rejected the covenant. He has rejected the word of God. And he has rejected the prophet of God. If God is working towards something, Saul is working towards something else. And perhaps we've been given hints at what that thing is from time to time. But now it's clear. He's been working for his own glory. He doesn't want to share the glory. He doesn't want to give the glory. He wants the glory for himself. Look, when he fled into the cave to preserve his life, and then when he rallied his armies and stormed out of the cave to preserve his reputation, when he cursed the people to have vengeance on, and I quote, my enemies, when he swears a curse upon himself in order to slaughter the faithful son who, by the way, won the day for the glory of God. And here, when he spares the best of the flock and pardons the pagan king, all of this is working towards a monument. 
He wants a grand monument to himself so that men will look upon him and admire. He wants glory, you see. And so do you. Look, when we sin, we're working against the glory of God and we're working toward the glory of self. When we sin, we're rejecting God and we're replacing Him with a self-shaped idol. Sin is a testament. It is a proclamation. It says, I am worthy of worship, not God. I am worth your attention, your devotion, your affection, not God. And when, when we rebel against our King, we don't seek an empty throne. When we rebel against our King, we seek to sit on the, the throne ourselves. Do you believe me? Because I can prove it from this passage. Listen to the words of Samuel. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Divination. You don't hear that word too frequently. Divination is the attempt to understand the future by consulting spirits or demons. And divination is a sin of the highest order because divination is what happens when you set aside the God of Israel. Because it's clear throughout the Scriptures and made clear to every generation that God is all-wise and all-powerful and He is the master of past and present and future. So there's only one reason why you'd seek counsel elsewhere. You only look to demons and spirits for counsel for one reason. Because God has become your enemy. Because what you want no longer corresponds with what He wants. And, and what doesn't correspond with what God wants? Idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of another. It's the act of setting aside the God of Israel to devote yourself to another. Why would you worship another? Why would you turn aside from the God of Israel to worship another? You turn aside to idols because you've stopped believing that God is, is the source of joy and prosperity and safety and hope. You turn to idols because what you want no longer corresponds with what God provides and what God demands. It's an act of independence. And it's an act of monument building. Divination and idolatry have this in common. In both cases, you've declared that God is a rival to that which you truly seek. You will bow to Him no longer because obedience and dependence of, upon God have compromised your sole objective. Both idolatry and divination, both dethrone God and enthrone self. Both replace God with self as the center of the universe. And both are acts of revolution. Desperate declarations of independence. 
In both cases, your own glory and your own objectives and your own whims are primary and all else must serve these ends. Are you beginning to see what Samuel is doing here? Samuel turns to Saul and by extension to us and he says that any act of disobedience, that any act of rebellion is in fact an act of revolution. It is a rejection of God as king. And it is the construction of a monument to the replacement king. But God will not be replaced. Look, everything that God is working toward, everything that God has done with creation since day one, everything will result in His glory. God's objective is clear. God is at work to rescue a people. God is at work to demonstrate His character to that people. And God is at work to make a kingdom for that people. All of those things are working toward one ultimate purpose, and that is that God will be glorified. So there's no greater stumbling block for the unbeliever than God's ultimate purpose to glorify Himself by the redemptive work of the King of Israel. Christ and His mission to rescue a people and to construct a kingdom and to orchestrate the praise of God forever and ever is the stench of death to those who are perishing. Yet it is the purpose of God in all things. God is too good and too kind and too concerned with the display of His own character and might to allow the sin of men to thwart it. God's purpose is to make Himself known to a people who will ever praise His name and His nature and His mercy and His grace. And that purpose is unstoppable. He will not change course. He will not shift gears. God's work to rescue a people and to demonstrate His character to that people is unstoppable. And woe to the replacement king who would attempt to thwart that purpose. The heart of Saul is to build a monument to himself. And that work is contrary to, it is in opposition to the heart of of God. How do I know that? Because this passage, I think, is a portrait of the heart of God. Look back at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. I regret that I have made Saul king. Regret Okay, so that's a heavy word. And we need to look closely here and make sure we're reading it rightly. So this word in the Hebrew has a range of meanings, and I think it's worth exploring that range very quickly. And then showing you why it's okay for God to have regret. Why that regret isn't an indictment against His sovereignty or against His wisdom. So this word, which here is translated as regret can refer to a few dispositions. First, it can mean grieved. In other words, it can refer simply to the experience of emotional pain. 
Second, it can mean relent. In other words, it can refer to a decision to change course in response to the actions of another. And third, it can mean repent. In other words, to experience grief because of a bad decision and to change course because that decision was wrong. Now, the reason I give you this range is because many have read this passage and assumed that this word means something other than what it actually means. Inconceivable. That's for you, Becky. When we encounter words like this, words which have a wide semantic range, yet matter, yet mean something significant for the passage, our burden as readers is to read the context closely and to make a decision. The context will teach you the meaning of the word. Luckily, this passage itself teaches us the meaning of this word in the negative. Because we learn that God, quote, regrets that he has made Saul king. And then later, that, quote, regret over Saul as king is repeated. And perhaps those two statements left alone might create a problem. Many unorthodox readers, and some of these were referenced by Brett earlier, many reference this passage as evidence that God's foreknowledge is limited, or that his wisdom is limited, or that his power is limited. You see what they did? They just jumped to the third meaning of this word without even really considering. Fortunately for us, though, who embrace the wisdom and power of God as our only hope, and that is not hyperbole, this passage doesn't allow us to do so. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regrets, for he is not a man that he should have Regret. All right, now, wait a minute. I just read that God regretted that he made Saul king twice. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regrets, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Well, which is it? Does God regret or doesn't he? Step back for a moment and survey the scene. Jealous for the glory of Israel, Saul is hard at work to sabotage the efforts of God to anoint a better king and to establish a true kingdom and to rescue a people for his glory. But right here, right at this moment, Saul begins to realize 
that his efforts have failed, that he's earned the enmity of God. His rebellion has come to an end, and he's terrified because he realizes that he has finally lost the kingdom. So he pleads with Samuel, get this, to pardon him and to return with him to bow before God. Mind you, there's no evidence that Saul is turning back from his glory-hungry sin. There's no evidence that Saul is grieving over his sin and pleading with Samuel because he bears the weight of that guilt. It's not what we see here. What we see is a man terrified of consequences. Saul does not want to lose the kingdom. And he does not want to lose face before the people. So he pleads with Samuel to change course. Pardon me. Bow before me. Bow bow with me before God. Let the people see you with me. Let them think that all is well. And Samuel says no. Because the glory of Israel does not lie or regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So here's the hard work of reading. The passage itself has just given you the boundaries of God's regret. You've been shown twice how God does regret and once how he does not regret. The key is, I think, to note what Samuel means when he says that God doesn't regret. Namely, that he doesn't lie. That he doesn't say one thing and do another. When, when Saul asks for pardon, what he's really asking is that he remain the replacement king. That he remain a king pursuing his own glory in a false kingdom. And Samuel says no. Because God is not like a man to say one thing and to do another. God has said that he's seeking a better king. He is working to establish a kingdom that never ends. Don't ask him to change his mind. That's not how he works. So the sort of regret that God doesn't experience is to change his mind. To promise to establish a kingdom and then decide not to. So what sort of regret does God experience then? Let me read you something. This is from Jeremiah 18. This is God speaking to his people. Listen, this blew my mind. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, says the, say to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, 
I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will wait for it, same word, relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So we're beginning to see a bit how God works. Always building toward a kingdom. Always working to set apart a people for himself. God issues conditional promises. In other words, God promises good things to come to some conditioned upon their obedience. And he promises bad things to others conditioned upon their continued disobedience. Now, note this. The constant here, and this is important, the constant is God's mission to prepare a people for His kingdom. That never changes. What changes is perhaps the actions of the recipients of His conditional blessing or His conditional warning. So if He says to Israel, I'll bless you and I'll keep you and I'll provide for you and you'll never want for anything as long as you love Me and fear My name and obey My commandments. If God says that to Israel and then they forget Him and forsake Him, and then they reject His law and seek the idols of the nations, God is not the inconsistent one if He sends them into exile. Do you see this? In that case, God has never changed. God's mission to establish a kingdom and to set apart a people for Himself has never changed. He has never shifted. But Israel has not met the conditions of that covenant. And God will grieve over that people as He sends them into exile. And if God hands His people to a king, and He promises that king and His people life and provision and protection, if only they'd love Him and not forsake His instructions... When that king refuses to obey God, and when that people follow him into disobedience, it is not God who has deviated. He is not the inconsistent one. God has never changed. He has never faltered in his mission to establish a kingdom and to set apart a people for himself. But Saul has not met the conditions of this covenant. And God will grieve over that king even as he turns to seek a better king. A king after his own heart. So what is the regret of God? It's the single-minded obsession to establish a kingdom and to set apart a people for himself. It's the heart of God as it encounters men and women who indeed should have embraced the work 
of the kingdom and yet work against it. The the regret of God is God's grief over sin interwoven with his commitment to establish the throne of the coming king of Israel. It's Christ weeping over Jerusalem as he prophesies of its destruction. God will not change. He never changes in His mission to glorify Himself by rescuing a people and establishing a kingdom. Yet He grieves over the sin of men even while mandating their judgment. That's the regret of God. And even though it may be hard to wrap your mind around it, luckily you don't have to imagine what this looks like because we have it embodied in the words and the actions of Samuel. The heart of Samuel is a reflection of the heart of God. It's like a mirror. And the portrait of Samuel in this passage, the character sketch of Samuel, so explicit in this passage, is an embodiment of God's heart towards sin and towards sinners. Take a look again at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Look again a bit, a bit further in verse 32. Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother So shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted they made Saul king over Israel. We've seen a clear portrait of the heart of Saul. And Saul is glory hungry. He's working against God. And he's jealous for the worship of Israel. And we've seen clearly a portrait of the heart of God. He is steadfastly pursuing a better king and a better kingdom. He's grieved over sin, yet determined to orchestrate the worship of his people. Now we find a portrait of the heart of Samuel. And it is a stunning display of devotion. It is a display of worship Because it is a reflection of the heart of God. It is the heart of the the ambassador. The heart of the prophet. You might even say that Samuel is a man after God's own heart. Samuel is a representative of God. He embodies the attitudes and disposition of God at every turn in this story. Carrying like a weight the heaviness of God's regret by crying out all night. Grieving with God over a lost king. And establishing the just decrees of God. Exacting vengeance on His enemies. The final scene in this passage is staggering. We spent an hour last week 
exploring God's great and glorious wrath against sin and why it's good and worthy of worship. So I'm not going to deal with that here. But just sit back for a moment and watch the scene unfold. Samuel asks for a sword, demands the spared king, and hacks him into pieces. That is violent. And it ought to be disturbing. Because this is God's disposition towards sin. Listen to his words. As your sword made women childless, so so shall your mother be childless among women. That statement is the justice of God on display. God's zeal to avenge His people. God's passionate pursuit of purity. God's wrath against sin and His fervent pursuit of His own glory. We think about these things in the abstract. But here in the hands of Samuel, this sword is not abstract. The execution of Agag is not abstract. And because Samuel is faithful to reflect the heart of God, we're given a picture of the gravity of sin, a picture of God's hatred of sin, and a picture of God's judgment against those who would embrace the darkness. It is a foreshadowing of the coming judgment. It is a preview of the kingdom of God realized. Samuel's words and his sword pierce the heart of Agag, the murderer king. This is the heart of God towards sin on display, embodied in the actions and words of Samuel. And get this, this is the display that we ought to have seen in the work of Saul and his army. Yet Saul opposes God. He works against God's purposes. At every turn, Samuel is faithful to the heart of God. He reflects God's heart like a mirror. Samuel is, his is a heart like God's. And when you see that dynamic on display, you're supposed to recognize the stark contrast between the heart of Saul and the heart of Samuel. We know that God is seeking a better king. We know that God is seeking a king after his own heart. We just didn't quite grasp the breadth of the chasm between God's heart and Saul's. Until we see Samuel. And at the end of this passage, as Samuel abandons that broken replacement king you have a pretty crystal clear idea of what God means when He says He's seeking a a better king. The true king of Israel is a man after God's heart. His passions, His mission, His desire reflects the heart of God like a mirror. And as we contrast that disposition with the disposition of the replacement king, our anticipation for the coming king of Israel should be building. See, 
We've covered now a lot of Samuel. And every episode of this story, from the moment that Hannah prophesied of a coming king, to the promise of God to seek a better king, to this moment where Saul's dark heart is on display and set in contrast to the heart of God. Every episode of this story has been leading up to the moment where we meet the true king of Israel. And as our expectations of his heart and his mission broaden, so does our anticipation of his arrival. The better king is nearly here, and he will establish the true kingdom of God, and his throne will endure forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.